All right. Uh, well, good evening, everyone. Um, just, just so you know, like the worship team will be coming back towards the end. It was kind of a bit of an abrupt stop, but we're going to be doing more of that and some cool new things towards uh, at the end of uh, tonight's service because uh, tonight we are going to be talking about worship, and when you talk about worship, you kind of have to do something kind of creative with worship as well at the same time. So, um, yes, so my name is Bernie, and it is fantastic to be uh, back with you guys here again uh, speaking or continuing on in the, the rhythm series. Um, and now tonight, uh, we're going to be talking about something that's very, very close to my heart and something I'm sure you've noticed when I've been playing up here on Sunday evenings that I'm quite passionate about, and that is worship. I absolutely love worship. I think it's a, a beautiful and fantastical thing. Um, I've been involved in worship bands ever since I was a young kid. I started off uh, playing saxophone in my kids' church band in Auckland. And then when I was about 15, I had one guitar lesson where I learned how to play bar chords on the guitar. And then the week later, I joined uh, the youth band at church where we had seven guitarists all playing ridiculously loud and ridiculously out of tune all at the same time. And it was fantastic. So, uh, so those groovy moves and things you see me pulling, I've been developing those for the last 15 years uh, in different situations and things. But um, uh, my experiences with worship have taken me into a number of different scenarios. I've been in small 15-person churches where all they have is an organ and a hymnal, uh, to 3,000-person uh, arenas full of screaming young people as they praise Jesus at Easter camps. I've been in the audience, I've been on stage, I've been side of stage, and I've witnessed God move in power uh, in every and any situation you could think of. And for me, I don't tell you these things to add to my credibility about being able to teach about worship. It's for me to share that I am incredibly thankful and humbled by uh, the privilege it is to serve uh, through this amazingly creative medium. I love being able to create um, an environment where people can encounter God in the most intimate way for us to stand together, us, this crazy bunch of all sorts, this crazy family we have here, uh, and we get to stand together and sing or yell how we feel about God to Him. It's an incredible thing. It's something that I'll never take for granted and something I'm incredibly astounded by. Worship to me is incredible. And I'm sure all of us have had numerous uh, experiences in worship, different styles, congregations, sizes and shapes, uh, and we've all experienced worship differently. I think for most of us, when I say the word worship, you have a basic idea or understanding of what it is. It's our regular Sunday segment of offering praises to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, which is good. That is essentially what worship is. I do think, though, and... As humans, we like to do this a lot. We like to box things up and categorize things so that we can understand them or we can handle them. Uh, sometimes we limit things so that we can control it and not be surprised by it. And I think at times we, we have done that with worship. Let me use a quick illustration just to describe what I mean. A few years ago, my friends and I decided that we'd love to do a road trip to Rome. We had just finished our mission school in Germany. And uh, we had a few days off, and we're like, let's mission it down to, to Rome, because I think that, would be, that we thought that would be pretty epic. So we hopped in the car, and a couple of days later, we arrived in Rome. Now, to quote the saying, of course, when in Rome, uh, you have to see all the hot spots. You have to go see the Colosseum, you've got to go to St. Peter's Basilica, you've got to go check out the Vatican. 
And of course, when you're in Rome, well, technically, when you're in the Vatican, I guess, you have to check out the roof of the Sistine Chapel because that place is famous, right? Now, when I say the word Sistine Chapel and you think of the roof, the, probably the first thing you think of is this image here. Michelangelo's Adam and God painting. Now, I know Craig actually mentioned this in one of his messages a couple of weeks ago, but when we think of the Sistine Chapel and we think of Michelangelo, we think of this painting. Very, very famous. Very, very cool. Now, you would think that because it's so famous, that it would be the key feature of the ceiling, right? That it would be like, this is like the, the main deal, this is like the big deal, right? Well, I was pleasantly surprised when I arrived at the Sistine Chapel to learn that it's actually just one part of a way bigger complex series of artworks that talk about the Old Testament, talk about the coming of Jesus, talk about the creation of the world. It's like, it's so complex and so large, it's actually kind of hard to find where the Adam and God painting is and amongst it. How many of you are still looking for it? A few down the back. It's, uh, it's kind of just off-center to the middle here. Uh, kind of one, two, three, four, five, five cent paintings in on the middle. Um, so it, it's, it, and I think it's the same with worship. We understand a certain portion of it but there's actually a richness and a vast to it, which, vastness to it which is far greater than maybe what we get to experience or what we, we, we do on a week-to-week basis. I, I think there's a bigger picture to worship. Oh, man, that was such a terrible pun. I wrote that and I thought it would be hilarious, and it really wasn't. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, so tonight, as we, as we delve into worship, as we try and maybe understand this this big topic, which is worship. And just a side point, this is the first time when coming to write a message, I've had to do four or five different rewrites because I'd, I'd start writing it and I'd start getting into this ranty, like finger pointy kind of mood where it's kind of like, we should be doing this different and that better and this is how we should be doing it. And um, ultimately that wasn't going to be beneficial for us as a congregation. So I ended up scrapping it numerous times. So uh, here we go. So tonight I want to start with looking at what the words in the Bible actually mean when they talk about worship. Now, um, in both Hebrew and Greek, there are two categories of words for worship. The first is about body language that demonstrates respect and submission, to bow down, to kneel, to prostrate oneself, which is to lie flat on your face on the ground. The second is about doing something for God that demonstrates sacrifice and obedience, to offer, to serve. In Hebrew, seven different words are used to describe what worship is. And they are barak, which is to kneel or bow, to give reverence to God as an act of adoration, implies a continual conscious giving place to God to be attuned to Him in His presence. Halal, uh, to praise, to make a show or rave about it, to glory in or boast upon, to be clamor clamorously foolish about your adoration of God, as in hallelujah. Shaka, to depress or prostrate in homage or loyalty to God. Bow down, fall down flat. Tehillah, to sing halal, a new song, a hymn of spontaneous praise, glorifying God in song. Toda, an extension of the hand, a vowel, adoration, a choir of worshippers, confession, sacrifice of praise, thanksgiving. Yada, to use, hold out the hand, 
to throw a stone or an arrow at or away, to revere or worship with extended hands, praise, thankful, thanksgiving. And zamah, to touch the strings or parts of a musical instrument, play upon it, to make music accompanied by the voice, to celebrate in song and music, give praise, sing forth praises and psalms. In Greek, uh, the word proskunio, and forgive me, I'm not very good at pronouncing Greek or Hebrew, so we'll just move on from that. In, wo- in, the, in the word proskunio uh, is the most common word for worship that we find in the New Testament in, in, in Greek. Um, and it's probably my personal uh, translation of the word, because it, it, proskunio means to kiss the ground while prostrating yourself before a superior, or to fall down uh, or prostrate oneself to a door on one's knees. I really like it. it um, it's an incredible picture that it paints for us uh, when it comes to worship. I think uh, for a lot of us, we've always understood the basic principles of worship, that we come, we sing, we offer our thanks to the Lord, but have we ever reached the level of worship described in these words? To me, the impression left on me after looking at these words in this While our Sunday offerings are indeed part of worship, it's obvious to me that we are called to a daily rhythm of worship that doesn't always just involve music. It involves regularly recognizing that God is sovereign and that we are not, and that we need Him daily. This uh, daily routine of worship isn't actually anything new. We see it through all through the Old Testament. God's people, the Israelites, were very aware of their need for God. Though they were a bit wishy-washy at times, they were in a position where they needed God to forgive their sin on a daily basis. This involved animal sacrifices and other offerings as a way of being granted temporary forgiveness. Sin was a big deal. It ultimately meant life or death to them on a daily basis. Remember, this was different times then. They desperately wanted to be in God's good books. So after the Ten Commandments were delivered to them, they began to build this entire culture around God, about giving God the worship he deserves. While this sounds really good intentioned, and I'm sure indeed at the time it was, what ended up happening is 613 rules and regulations were put in place to dictate the do's and don'ts of Israelite culture, which ultimately, if followed correctly, would create a healthy, God-fearing culture. Eventually, these rules and regulations were made into law, and if you break the law, you'd get punished. Most commonly at this time, it would have been through public stoning. How do you think you would have done living in this culture? How many of us would probably have been stoned if we lived the way we live now, then? I've got a slide here, and in the background is all 613 rules. I had to use like... 0.1 size font to be able to fit them all onto the slide, even on this massive screen. But those are all kind of the rules that if you're a good God-fearing Israelite, you had to obey by. And I've got 10 here. Here are just 10 of the rules. To emulate God's ways, to reprove a sinner or reprove, which is to kind of rebuke a sinner or to make them aware of, of their sin. Not to embarrass others, not to oppress the weak, not to speak derogatorily of others, not to take revenge, not to bear a a grudge, 
to learn Torah, which is the whole you know, key first part of the Bible, the scriptures and stuff like that, to learn that whole thing. Not to follow the whims of your heart or what your eyes see, and not to blaspheme. Those are just 10 out of the 613 that you had to constantly be aware of. Okay, I have to do it this way. I can't do it that way. If I do this wrong, there's a chance that the authorities are going to find me and punish me because I didn't do it right. Things were strict. Things were uh, regulated to the max. And it was a little over the top, and certain officials could use the rules or would use the rules to their own advantages, like what we kind of see happening with the Pharisees at times. But what we also see is the incredible reverence that God's people had for him. They wanted to please him daily. They would lie face down before him every day and beg for him to forgive them, for freedom from sin and the ultimate punishment that comes with it. They were very aware of their need for God. They recognized the sovereign power over them, and they worshipped him daily in all the different aspects of their lives. Today, in our culture, we don't have these rules. We have been set free from these old laws. God has forgiven us for the sins of today, yesterday, and the ones in the future. We have this new liberty to live lives in a new sense of freedom, a freedom that God wanted us to have right from the very beginning. He wanted us to daily choose to worship him, not to be forced into worship out of a fear of being stoned, but for us to choose. That being said, I think a lot of us struggle with this idea because we have, in, in fact, lost some of our understanding of how to be reverent. Reverence sounds like a funny old word. But it's one that if you understand it in full, will fully revolutionize the way you worship and how you live your life. Sorry, I got a little bit behind in my slides, but that's okay. If we become fully aware of our position, our need for God in our lives, then we'll see a revolution in our worship because worship isn't about us. That's reverence. It's what those words that we looked at at the start of the night of messages describe. It's submitting yourself before the king. It's laying yourself down before the Lord of lords and the king of kings and saying, I desperately need you in my life. Thank you for all you have done for me. How can I serve you and bring glory to your name? I want to touch on that word proscunio again. When I first read this word and its description, the Bible, the Bible story that came to my mind, first of all, was that story of Mary, who comes to Jesus, bringing her prized possession, her perfume, kneels down before him and pours the expensive perfume all over Jesus' feet and then wipes it with her own hair. Isn't that such a beautiful picture? of Proscunio, to coming to the feet of Jesus with everything we have and saying, I love you, Lord. I want you to have this as a sign of my thanks, a sign of how much you mean to me, a sign of how I would do anything for you. Just ask. That's reverence and action, and it's beautiful. This is what I believe God intended worship to be like. To put God first and be obedient to the things he calls us to. 
for us to choose on a daily basis to live for Him, to offer Him all that we have in service to His cause, to acknowledge daily that we need Him and that He is sovereign, and for us to make the sacrifices necessary in our own lives so that He indeed does sit on the thrones of our hearts. When we come on a Sunday, we realize that this is a, an amazing opportunity to gather together with other like-minded believers and worship the God who created us. To take time to regularly express genuine thankfulness and reverence as well as giving him honest offerings. I'm a big believer in the fact that God can handle anything that we bring to him. Our joy, our anger, our pain, and our excitement. He can handle it all. And I think Sunday services are an excellent opportunity to bring God an honest offering of who we are. To, hit, to come to him in reverence, but with no holds barred. And this goes for everyone involved in a Sunday service. We're all different parts of the body, and it's an amazing thing when we praise them together. From the guy on the drums to the person running the sound at the back to the, to the guy like Caleb sitting up in the dark room up there running the slides to the kids' church leaders running the, the, the kids' group out in the West Wing to you sitting here in this room in your pew. We're all part of this and we all are part of this bigger thing called worship when we, when we come to it on a Sunday. But I know it can be hard sometimes to worship on a Sunday. And I want to take a, take a couple of minutes to talk about it. Because ultimately, I believe that if you do adopt this daily lifestyle of reverent worship before God, it will solve a lot of this, this stuff. But it is good to talk about it because worship is uh, countercultural. We, and we have to make sure we don't let it get infected by the secular world. We live in a world of Burger King advertising where it's, ha it's the have it your way mentality, where you should live a life full of the things you like and absent from the things that you don't like. In particular, music has become the most curated form of this. iTunes, Spotify, and even YouTube music libraries tune into what you play, what you click, and they begin to make suggestions of artists and things that they, they think you should listen to. Very soon you become surrounded by numerous artists from all the same genre. You're quickly isolated and categorized, surrounded by the things that you like. So how do you think could this attitude or culture of li only listening to the things that you like then affect a church when it comes to worship? Have you heard this before? Oh, the service was good, but the worship didn't really do anything for me. Or... Oh, I wish they wouldn't be so loud or play those rocky songs. Where's the organ? Or, why is it so dead in here? If I have to sing How Great Thou Art one more time, I am going to lose it. In all the different experiences of worship I've participated in, this is the most common thing that comes up. And I want us to be aware that there's a large part of the blame for this attitude that can be attributed to the secular culture we live in. As a guitarist, I get distracted in worship very, very easily. That wrong chord or funny melody line tends to generate quite an interesting little commentary in my mind. I've had to come to the point of realizing that these men and women that stand before us each week 
playing their instruments are just one part of the offering we give to God each Sunday. They are doing their part to the best of their ability. What am I doing? Am I adding to this moment by critiquing and tearing down my brothers and sisters? Or am I willing to see past that and worship the God that fills my lungs with life? Yes, we are human. Yes, we get frustrated. Yes, we get distracted. And yes, we get things wrong. But we're also creative, loving, fearfully and wonderfully made beings that can choose to put our own interests to the side when it comes to the short 20 to 25 minute window of congregational worship. We have to fight to keep worship sacred because the world out there wants to infect it. I want to read an article that I found that leads nicely into where I want to finish tonight. It's about singer-songwriter Matt Ridman and his song, The Heart of Worship. We are creatures of habit. If we don't find ways to remind ourselves of what we do, we're prone to just going through the motions. If not, adopt some new underlying motivation altogether, which can be especially dangerous in worship. For songwriter and worship leader Matt Ridman, this lesson came in a remarkable experience that was both personal and corporate. In the late 1990s, the preaching pastor at Redmond's church in Watford, England, sensed that their worship gatherings were going flat spiritually, that the congregation was just going through the motions and worship wasn't flowing from the heart like true Christian worship must. There was a dynamic missing, says Redmond. So the pastor did a pretty brave thing. He decided to get rid of the sound system and a band for a season, and we gathered together with just our voices, His point was that we'd lost our way in worship and that the way to get back to the heart would be to strip everything away. During the season, the pastor challenged the congregation to be participants in worship, not consumers, to come ready to engage with God for themselves, from the heart, not just watch with their eyes. He wanted them to come as worshippers, not as concertgoers. With the band and sound system God gone, it made an unforgettable time in the life of the church as they sang a cappella only, and for an unforgettable lesson about worship. Before long, says Redmond, we reintroduced the musicians and sound system as we gained a new perspective that worship is all about Jesus, and he commands a response in the depths of our souls, no matter what the circumstance and setting. The heart of worship simply describes what occurred. Good music, catchy beats, talented musicians, even the friends and loved ones with whom we worship, they are all good things and wonderful in the context of corporate worship. And yet when we focus on them rather than on Jesus, we are losing the heart in our worship. The essence of worship is not the many good externals, but the heart and the head, spirit and truth. Our spirit stirred by the Holy Spirit in worship over true things about God, His Son, and His Gospel. The heart of worship is our heart, delighting in Jesus and expressing praise to Him for the true things He teaches us in the scriptures He teaches us about who He is and what He's accomplished for us. It is then all about Jesus, not us. It involves us, but we're on the periphery. He's at the center. He's the focus, 
It is his commands we consider first, not our preferences. Redmond's song is about refocusing and recentering and reminding ourselves why we worship and who we worship. What I want for us to do now is we're going to go back to how we started tonight, which with with worship, we're going to go back to that. But it's going to be with a little bit of a difference. I want us to go uh, in with a new focus, with with a new sense of vulnerability. For many of us, what we're about to do is going to be very uncomfortable and exposing. But I want to encourage you, don't worry, you're not going to be alone. There's a reason I just play guitar when I play in a worship team that you're going to find out in a moment about. What I want us to do is I want to invite you to sing with me a cappella, How Great Is Our God. After that, we're going to go into some more worship with a difference, but I'll explain what's going to happen there when we get to it. So I would invite you to stand with me, and I'm going to turn this microphone off, and we're going to sing through How Great Is Our God. So we're going to, we're going to um, put on a bit of a musical pad, uh, a bit of am- ambience, and what I want to allow you to do is um, it's a time for you to express yourself to God in a way that isn't contemporary, a way that isn't just songs that we sing on a screen. It's, uh, it's going to be a time where you're, you can walk around, you can pray, uh, get out of your, getting out of your pew if you want to get out of your pew, uh, moving, it's singing your own song to God if that's what you want to do, if it's to prostrate yourself before God and tell Him how thankful you are for all that you've done for Him, so that's like kneeling or lying down, I'd invite you to do that too. We're going to be doing this for the next little while. There's also down the back of the room, we've got some bits of paper uh, and some different resources and things, and maybe you want to write an open, open letter to God about what's going on for you. I've put some kind of sentence starters up on the screen that you you could use if you want to use, or you could write something that's completely just yours and yours alone. It's between you and you and God. But what I, I would invite us is to to come back to this heart of worship that we talked about before. This you know bringing God who we are and where we are right now because He can handle it, and He wants you. To, and He wants you. He wants you to come with all that's going on for you and, and say, "Here I am, Lord. Here I am." I need you, I want you, let's, let's do this together. So uh, feel free yeah, to move. We're going to worship now. Feel free to grab bits of paper from down the back if you want. If you want to sit in your pews and pray, you can do that. If you want to walk around and pray or do all that. After a little while, we'll move into a few songs to finish off the night. But I invite you to... Express yourself before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The only thing I would ask is that you be sensitive to the people around you. Be sensitive of this environment we're trying to create here and the reverence uh, it deserves. Let's worship. Let's worship.